I think by its very name and nature, being a social CEO or a social leader requires some understanding and use of social media. But it's 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 more than that. It's it's really about um, it's about a different mindset. It's about seeing social media and social interaction um, in, in a leadership role, not as a threat um, or something to be afraid of, but actually a real opportunity. I would say a connected CEO and social media is another channel of allowing me to be connected. And it's not about shameless self-promotion or promotion of your organization. It's about being connected. You know, we have to be relevant for four, shortly five working generations. And we have to meet people where they're at. And an awful lot of our customers or our stakeholders or our people are using social media. So it has to be a channel that, that we utilize in order to connect with them. But it's not a one-way thing. It's got to be two-way. And and I pick up as much from reading what other people post or from seeing who reacts to what I post as I do about actually posting in the first place. So for me, I think it's essential, particularly in an organization where the people are the product, that I stay absolutely connected to my customer base, to the markets, to my people and to my future people as well. Hi, I'm Paul Miller and this is Digital Workplace Impact where we investigate and explore the ideas, practices and people that are impacting the new digital worlds where we all work. Digital Workplace Impact is produced by the Digital Workplace Group, a strategic partner and boutique consultancy covering all aspects of the evolving digital workplace industry through membership, benchmarking and boutique consulting services. And if you'd like more information, visit digitalworkplacegroup.com. So today's episode is it's kind of tales of a lockdown CEO, certainly in part, from her office shed in the UK, Sarah Walker-Smith, who is the CEO of Shakespeare Martineau. She's the first female non-lawyer of a top 50 law firm. But she uses the word connected CEO, which I really like. And it's really conversations with her and her experiences. Also um, with Damien Corbett. Damien wrote a terrific book called The Social CEO, and he interviewed Sarah for it. And we, we get into the kind of benefits of being a connected CEO in challenging times. Have you noticed everybody uses words like strange times, challenging times? There's a whole myriad of things, but certainly she has found that her ability to connect to people inside her own law firm and externally has really made a huge difference to her during this period. And I really enjoyed the conversation. It was recorded in the midst of lockdown. The other thing just to kind of mention before we um, get into the episode is I wrote something called the Decade of Courage Manifesto. It was started as a playbook. It was going to be a blog post. And then myself and various colleagues crafted this into the, I suppose, quite ambitious idea of a manifesto. It's got 12 action points for essential workplace transformation. And it's really my distilled response to the times of COVID and what to do. And you can download off the Digital Workplace Group uh, website, just put DWG, Decade of Courage Manifesto, um, or go into digitalworkplacegroup.com and you'll find the Decade of Courage Manifesto there. And I hope you enjoy today's episode. 
So I'm delighted to be joined today by Sarah Walker-Smith. Sarah is the CEO of Shakespeare Martineau. Uh, she's the first female non-lawyer CEO in the, of a legal top 50 firm. Uh, she's a trained accountant, having worked at PwC and Deloitte. Um, and she's also a governor at Nottingham Trent University and is a member of the Society of Leadership Fellows at St. George's House and is on the board of the West Midlands Confederation of British Industry Council. Um, so she's got a fascinating background and I'm delighted to be joined by Sarah today as a CEO representative on the podcast. Um, and also my other guest is Damien Corbett. Damien is the founder of, of the Social C-Suite. He's a social media strategist, consultant and writer. And he founded the Social C-Suite to help senior managers get the most from social media and thrive in a social age. He also uh, has recently authored a book called The Social CEO, which is where I got to know Damien. And that was published by Bloomsbury in August of 2019. Um, So thank you to both of you for for joining me today. Pleasure. Damien, can, can I just start by asking you, um, what gave you the idea of your book, The Social CEO, um, how social media can make you a stronger leader? Well, I've, I've been kind of um, thinking along these lines for quite a few years, and I've been blogging and tweeting um, about social leadership since about 2014, because I saw a, a real sort of lack of understanding of of social media by people in leadership positions not just what social media is but what it's you know but what it's for really um there's a lot of you know the kind of oh it's 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 a time waster it's the kind of thing my kids do you know it's it's not a business tool all that sort of thing and i quickly learned when i signed on to twitter that it was a lot more than that it was a very very valuable tool um, I like to think of it almost as like the global brain. And I thought, who wouldn't want to tap into the global brain, if you're, especially if you're a leader? So I, I, um, I started blogging up about it. And then I started interviewing CEOs for my blog. I think I've interviewed about 30 CEOs all, all in all. Um, Sarah was the most recent one, actually. Um, and they gave me a lot of insights into, you know, why they use social media, the, the benefit it brings them. You know, not just that they use it, but why they use it. And that was the kind of um, germ for for the book. So then I, I I've been planning. I was planning the book for a, about a year and a half. Um, luckily, I got Bloomsbury to accept it. And um, I, I can't claim to be the author of the whole book. I um, I got a lot of people to contribute chapters for me, practicing CEOs and also sort of experts in in, in areas like PR and social selling and um, that sort of thing. So. That's really where where the germ of the book came from. It's, it was sort of five years in in, um, in gestation, really. Yeah, and and would you say that the concept of the social CEO is a CEO who's active in social media, or has the idea of a social CEO got a got a wider kind of meaning and relevance? That's an interesting question. Um, I think by its very name and nature. Um, being a social CEO or a social leader requires some understanding and use of social media, but it's, it's, it's more than that. Um, it's, it's really about, um, it's about a different mindset. It's about seeing social media and social interaction, um, in in a leadership role, not as a threat, um, or something to be afraid of, but actually a real opportunity. 
Um, I like to think of it as sort of metaphorically stepping out of the corner office and actually being more visible and approachable and engaging with your workforce and your customers. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that this is something I actually wrote back in 2014 when I was um, mulling over these ideas. And I was focusing on, on LinkedIn and I, I said, while it's important for you to be on LinkedIn and to use it properly, it's even more important to understand what LinkedIn and social media generally represents and why it's such a game changer. This may require a lot of mental readjustment and a different mindset, one that sees social media not as a threat or a challenge, but rather an incredible opportunity. So, yes, it does require a presence on social media, but it, it's more than that. It's about thinking differently as a leader. Um, that's, that's probably the best way I can describe it. Sort of what, what is a, somebody who's good as a social CEO and somebody who's really kind of poor as a social CEO look like? So I can get my head around what this sort of looks like in practice. Sure. Well, I, I suppose one of the best, I mean, obviously Sarah is a great example, but because she's on this podcast, I should nominate someone else. Um, one of the people who I think does it really well is um, a guy called Jack Selswadell. He's the CEO of American Family Insurance in America. And he's just wonderful. Um, he uses Twitter a lot and LinkedIn, but he's... The way he does it is he, he engages with his workforce. He sort of champions people who are doing great work. He talks about issues um, that, that affect the customers. And at the moment, he's really stepped up to the mark during the kind of COVID-19 crisis. He's communicating with, um, with his team and also with the public and with the customers, talking about how the company is um, is going to manage things, how they are helping their customers, what they're doing in terms of donations to local charities and things like that. Um, but it's all very kind of genuine and heartfelt. You don't feel like it's a PR stunt because he's been doing it long before this crisis started. Jack actually wrote a chapter in my book, and there's a great quote in, the, in, in his chapter that could be tailor-made for the current crisis. Um, in terms of a CEO who's doing it badly. Well, I mean, you know, I think you'd probably say that most of them are, <laughs> to be honest. I mean, most of them are not even present, apart from perhaps a basic LinkedIn profile. Most are, most don't have a Twitter profile um, or a or a you know or a an Instagram profile for you know for that matter. So I don't really want to single out names, but there are there are so many who just you know um, don't see the potential of it and. They've kind of ticked the boxes with the LinkedIn profile, for example, but don't really see, you know, the potential of, of, of what it can do for them. OK. Uh, and Sarah, just so um, everybody understands, could you just describe your role as CEO of Shakespeare Martineau? And, and I suppose my first question is, do you think of yourself as a social CEO? Yeah, thank you. So um, in terms of my role, um, obviously it's, as you'd expect with pretty much any other chief exec. Now, that might sound slightly unusual, though, in the context of a law firm, because, you know, virtually all law firms, not all of them, but most of them are partnerships. But our law firm's a bit different in that we have a very corporate business model. So I have a small non-executive board of a tiny percentage, actually, of the owners of the business who appoint me as chief exec and then delegate the running of the business. So it's pretty much like any other CEO of a, of a corporate organisation. So it's responsibility for, obviously, the vision, the strategy, the values, the purpose, where we're headed, but then the delivery, the operational delivery, the change programs that we have in place and uh, motivating and leading a 900 strong workforce. 
Okay. And do you think of yourself as a social CEO? Yeah, thank you. Sorry, I forgot to answer that bit. Um, it's funny, I, the word social CEO doesn't resonate with me until I hear Damien talk about it. And then it does make sense. I would say a connected CEO and social media is another channel of allowing me to be connected. And the thing that's really important about that, and I think Damien hit the nail on the head when he said the CEOs who are trying to use it as a PR channel are getting it all wrong. It's not about shameless self-promotion or promotion of your organisation. It's about being connected. You know, we have to be relevant for four, shortly five working generations. And we have to meet people where they're at. And an awful lot of our customers or our stakeholders or our people are using social media. So it has to be a channel that that we utilize in order to connect with them. But it's not a one way thing. It's got to be two way. And and I pick up as much from reading what other people post or from seeing who reacts to what I post as I do about actually posting in the first place. So for me, I think it's essential, particularly in an organization where the people are the product, that I stay absolutely connected to my customer base to the markets to my people and to my future people as well and so it's it's a way of of having that connection and doing it and also blurring those boundaries between internal and external because truly authentic leaders and and authentic organizations i think it's essential that they have the same persona internally and externally and social media i guess you're talking to both audiences at the same time Hmm. and and was there a time when you if you like, weren't thinking in this connected social uh, leadership way. And then there was a time when you you were or, or how did you get to where you are relative to this way of working really and leading? Gosh, quick version of that. I suppose probably about five or six years ago, I was um, running a different law firm and I was feeling that something was missing and I went away and spent some time working out what my purpose and values were I did an absolutely brilliant leadership course and it really helped me crystallize what I was all about and I realized that what was it just 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 so we can put it in the show it was run by um a lady called Dr Sam Collins and she runs the Aspire uh Aspire for Change uh, Aspire for Equality Foundation and it just so happened that this was a it happened to be a female leadership course and I've always resisted always going to women's only events because I don't see the world like that i think people are people and we should all just kind of get along together but for some reason i was compelled to go to this two or three day event in london and it really made me realize that as much as i want to drive doing great business and being commercially successful and all those wonderful things you learn as an accountant actually it's making a difference to people that really motivates me but then i had this light bulb moment that said if you make a difference to people and have a purpose-led organization that lives its values and and does something a as well as making money, something that people can relate to, then actually you will make more money as a result of it. So the whole thing becomes a virtuous circle. And I realized at that point that I had to shift my emphasis away from numbers or strategy or vision. And I, of course, I still have to be very much involved in all of those things. But the biggest difference I can make is almost as the chief motivation officer or the chief vision officer and and getting 900 people hopefully aligned around a vision of what we're trying to do or the values or the way we want to behave. So it it really struck me, having been a business person for many, many years, that actually the people were at the heart of this. And therefore, I was going to have to find different ways to connect. And at that point, started to use social media from a business perspective. Up to that point, I'd used it personally, but I'd kept the two things completely separate. And I suddenly thought as an authentic leader, I can't keep these things separate. I just have to be myself um, in whichever aspect of my life I'm talking about. 
Yeah, and I think it's 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 so true. This um, this uh, this subject of blurring, I think, is really interesting because. You know, I suppose in this particular co- podcast, I'm, I'm well, I am a CEO um, and we've got 100 people in the digital workplace group. And I suppose listening to the kind of definitions of what a social or connected CEO is, I, I'd like to think that I kind of operate like this. And I noticed that as you're talking, it's reminding me of kind of ways that I um, try and communicate, which is very much not just just for people in the company or or just for our customer base or just it's it's really kind of dipping into lots of different communities you know on on any given day i'll i'll post things in in lots of different spaces um and and i think that idea of blurring in this social ceo um, kind of way of seeing things is is really interesting. Can I can I ask you? I mean, I've got you know. So we're recording this on April the twentieth, twenty twenty. I think I would say we're in the kind of sort of wave two of COVID nineteen in terms of work, which is we we've, we're kind of beyond the kind of firefighting crisis period, and we're into this sort of strange new sort of weird normalization of things and and how has the covid 19 experience to date impacted your work as a if you like as a social ceo so how have you used that skill set to try and move your organization uh, through this crisis sarah yeah so the biggest difference is I used to have digital media, including um, obviously internal digital media like closed YouTube channels and things like that and external uh, social media as one of a series of uh, channels or um, tools that I would use, whereas now it's the primary one. So really trying to connect with people through digital media, it requires it's it's harder work when that's all you're doing and what I started to do so I'm working today from my uh, shed I know this is a podcast not a webinar otherwise you'd see my lovely shed um so I very quickly started working in the shed and started uh broadcasting shed life to all of my people mm. which we put on YouTube now it's behind a, a, a wall on YouTube because I'm, I'm having to share operational information and, and strategic information and various other things but very quickly I realized that my cadence of communication needed to be increased and I'm doing it by creating podcasts and videos literally from a garden shed um so first of all that changed and then secondly i probably now spend more time per day on social media than i would have done previously because again i'm aware that the only communication channels i have available to me properly at the moment are digital channels and therefore i'm i'm reinvesting some of my face-to-face communication time into those digital channels as well Mm. so i think it's 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 been a, a balance shift in in time and also really working out how to be your authentic self using those channels without trying too hard and i think damien's absolutely right that it's really obvious when some people are trying too hard it this is not a pr tool it's a communication tool mm. and and damien I, I it kind of feels to me like what one of the effects of the coronavirus and the way that it's um well it's kind of unstitched work in sort of real time and and it feels like the future's sort of caught up with the present and it, by that i mean that ideas that at one time felt like a nice to have uh, have become kind of part of the essential fabric of work and 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 i wondered whether you feel that 
this crisis has revealed crisis kind of reveal what really matters don't they so we've discovered that there are people in our society called key workers essential workers i don't really seem to remember us calling them people who were stacking the shelves in tesco key workers and essential workers before but now we realize they actually are and and is is this crisis sort of revealing which ceos have if you like got the I would say the kind of CEO capabilities, and, and which one of them, which ones haven't. I think it has, and I, I just want to just just to say I think um, Sarah's description of sort of a connected CEO is is really spot on. You know, it's it's social media is part of that, but it's it's about it's about connection, and and I found it very interesting what she was saying about how she's actually doing a lot more digital and social media now. Um, that you know, it's it's become essential, and I think yes, I think sort of following on from that um, to answer your question, I think uh, this has revealed it's it's it, the sort of fault lines in a way um, in in the way some leaders behave, and I think these these things often happen. You get these sort of these crises that come along every now and again, and they almost like a kind of evolutionary jump, you know, <laughs> um, and I think this is one of those stages where. Um, I don't want to kind of overblow it because things could easily go back to not, you know, to the old ways. But I think it has revealed um, something different, you know, that society needs something different um, from their leaders and that the way we've done things in the past has perhaps not been ideal. Um, the kind of command and, and control sort of hierarchical way of doing things. I mean, we still need those things. And I, I mean, I'm not claiming to be a leadership expert by any means, but um the way I see it, yes, indeed. I think the there are leaders like Sarah and like Jack in America and countless others who have been doing this already. You know, this is the way they operate. They're just stepping up even more now. But they've got they've done the groundwork. They know how it works. They know they they think in the right way in a connected way. So for them, this crisis is perhaps less of a crisis in terms of at least communication. There's obviously other problems in terms of you know keeping your business afloat and paying your employees and all that sort of thing. But um, it's, uh, I, I think the ones who, who are just struggling to catch up now, they are, you know, they are literally playing catch up. And um, I think it will start to show perhaps in, in, in the way they are perceived. Um, you know, we all probably re- remember receiving emails from the CEOs of some of the big supermarkets, like soon after the crisis started. And, you know, even though I think those are rather sort of PR sort of operations, I do. I do remember that first email I got. I think from Sainsbury's CEO, you know, and then everyone else started following on, and it's like, oh, they all playing catch up now, and it's a similar th- thing with social media. Um, so yes, I think there is. Um, there's a before and after. I like to think that um, the way things are, you know, what this has exposed will perhaps make leaders more um, more approachable, more connected in the future. Um, some probably will revert back to how it was before. I don't know, but um, time will tell on that. Yeah, and I, and I wonder, um, Sarah, it, it, I mean, one of the things, because, you know, I've spent a lot of time talking to leaders around the, if you like, uh, the digital workplace, which is what we as a, as a company focus on. And those organisations that already had quite an advanced digital way of working have, have found adapting to this, new kind of uh, modality quite straightforward there's a major insurance company in the states within 12 hours they had um, 60,000 people all working fully remote and 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 they just carried on um, and and I, and I wonder whether 
you know, your experience, it's, it strikes me that what we're talking about here is similar. If you've already got that skill set that allows you to work like a connected CEO, that then when things are shifting around and you need to increase the frequency and you need to move into the shed, um, is it quite a nice shed? Because I've got a feeling your shed's going to be quite, I think, you're, are you sort of slightly playing it down? <laughs> it, it, a little bit. Um, but what was funny is when I first moved in, it looked like a sauna and I was getting so many comments from people talking about me sitting right. in a sauna. I then I then decorated it over a weekend so I've properly pimped the shed up now for want of a better word and it's looking okay. quite quite lovely now <laughs> okay so that'll have to be another thing called you know CEO CEO sheds CEO workspaces because I mean the, you know it's, it's like when we were watching I don't know if you watched any of the um, the one world um, performance last night and it was so interesting seeing all these people like Lady Gaga and Mick Jagger's house and you know who's got the right equipment yeah um Anyway, get it getting a bit sidetracked, but um, I, I, it, it, it. So it, yeah, it's this idea, um, and it's a question for either of you, really. That I don't know how CEOs can really pay, you know, this idea of catch up because it feels to me that if you're not a connected CEO, it's kind of well, what are you? What are you doing? I mean, is it? It's almost like is it possible? to operate as a in a leadership role in any organization now i mean particularly in the ones that really interact with people without being this connected social ceo i think it depends on on you know i mean one of my previous organizations was a um a listed company and the ceo you know wouldn't be seen dead on twitter you know he was too you know too worried about saying the wrong thing and affecting the share price um so you can kind of understand that reticence you know but, you know he still had a linkedin profile and I think for someone like that, even he was was better at communicating internally, at least. So, you know, even if CEOs are perhaps a little bit wary of, of um, external communications, depending on the industry that they're in, they could certainly do, you know, do more internal communications. Um, you know, that would be something. Um, but I think, uh, yes, it's... Um, I think it's difficult, especially if you have an outward-facing organization and you have customers that you need to deal with um, directly. Um, it's difficult to, to see how yeah, you know, yeah. the CEO can really operate without being present in some form on, on, on yeah, social channels, yeah. really. And, I, and, I, and I, it strikes me, you know, and, and not sure what you think about this, Sarah, but the, that this, this idea, I mean, when I think of the connected or the social CEO, I don't really think internal, external, because I think quite legitimately that can vary depending, you know, if you are the CEO of a major listed organization, frankly, they don't have the freedom to kind of post something up on LinkedIn or Twitter like I've done, you know, a couple of hours ago, because frankly, I'm not going to do too much damage if I say something wrong. But, you know, if you're the CEO of Procter & Gamble or Unilever, you, you've got to be more careful. Um, but it feels to me like it's not so much about the channel. It's about the kind of quality of the message. Um, what, what's, your, what's your thoughts around that, Sarah? Yeah, so so I would say, and and I've thought about this before, and you know, of of course, I'm absolutely not um, linked to you know a share price decision, or indeed with some of our politicians at the moment, where they know the media and the opposition will be all over them the minute they give an opinion, which is why they very often don't answer questions. So we we do have a bit of a broken system where people in really strong positions of influence are discouraged from being honest because of the way we treat them when they are honest. So that mm. take that to one side for a second, though. Um, for me, it's about connecting back to why you're making a decision and and knowing 
the motivation is right, your words and actions meet, your values are aligned, and you can't go too far wrong with that if you stay true to that principle. And I would encourage people to push themselves further than they think they can go as long as those things are true. But if I may just come back to your previous point as well, it is not a case of people paying catch up because this thing will keep evolving. You know, I can't stay still and reset at the position I'm at now. It will go again. And I think the one thing now that will be true for for all chief execs is there is no single way of doing it. There's no static way of doing it. The pace of change and the agility and the flexibility needed are are just ramping up quite dramatically. And, you know, it feels like we're writing the rule book as we go along here. So, So I think there will need to be some element of adaptability and experimentation of whatever any of us are doing, not just assuming that we're on a single linear path that that some people are ahead and some people are going to catch mm. up um things are going to change too quickly and and keep changing yeah and the analogy that's coming to me is it's a bit like if you play any um team sports there's this kind of concept that you you, you don't know what's going to evolve in the next moment so the the quality of that team is the ability to respond in real time to a changing environment and it feels to me that we're in a far more fluid situation and and, and one of the things i'm interested in 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 what um what you think damien about this that you know this idea that we can go back to normal i, I would say that the world we had pre-covid 19 is gone it doesn't exist anymore and and there's a level of grief and there's a sadness and there are definitely things that i don't want to lose like social connection physical connection uh, gatherings of human beings but the, the that world has now gone it's vanished and we actually have to need to we need to step into this new world with confidence and and actually move from where we are now and and i just wondered um sarah um how do you feel that the way that you've you've um if you like kind of been moving through this from your shed um how's that benefit how how's that benefited shakespeare martineau um internally externally with your clients etc Well, I think it's genuinely too early to say at the moment. I think we have to take every day at a time. I think the minute we think we've nailed it or we get complacent about that, something's going to shift. So I think I think we have to stay all over it. But I I do think the authenticity and we were already trying to make a significant amount of change anyway. I've been at the organisation just over a year and we'd just rewritten the strategy. We knew where we wanted to get to. We'd spent a lot of time on culture, vision and values. Quite frankly, this situation, as horrible as it is, and as none of us would have wished for it, is allowing us the ability to accelerate the pace of that change. It's, it's created a burning platform for us. So I, I'm a big believer of looking for silver linings. And one of our silver linings is absolutely that we can probably drive the cultural change, the strategy and the vision and values, etc., a bit more quickly but that will only be true if we if our words and our actions meet and if we can build up the trust of our customers and our clients and the trust of our people and trust is at the heart of it now mm. but have you seen any uh, have you seen any specific examples where either somebody inside your organization or one of your uh, clients has 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 kind of benefited or or thanked you for the way that you're you're handling something yeah i mean we 
but like many organizations we've offered some of our services for free we've stopped the clock ticking we're just talking to our clients we've got a free helpline and various other things like that and the gratitude i i wasn't expecting it but i've had a huge amount of personal thank yous even though i'm not directly involved in in servicing any of our client relationships so i think when you do invest a little bit in those relationships and and offer some flexibility to help people i think that that trust and that bond that's growing, whether it's internally or externally, is there. So I think where we've been able to show flexibility. And um, the other thing that I get thanked for, and I'm not saying for a second I get all of this right, but internally I have a huge amount of uh, feedback about being honest. And I'm very, very honest with people, whether it's good news or bad news. And I think that level of honesty, I think, I think I'd like to hope is benefiting people because we know that there's a lot of anxiety, quite understandably, about this situation. And the more information I can give, even if it's not finalised, it's allowing people a bit more certainty. And I think if you can build any kind of certainty for people, that that is helpful. And I think we know that if you can find a way of putting people in control of things, that's helpful. So I'll, I'll give an example. When, when we first started talking about whether we were going to need to do any furloughing, and I'm going back four, four weeks or so now, we we asked for volunteers, we gave people the choice and we, we tried to give them a bit of control back. And um, I think control can really help with well-being as well. So I, I think the, the kind things, the gratitude, the empathy, the, the good things we do now, I think will stand us in good stead with relationships in the future. Hmm. No, that's 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 great. And those those words uh, are ones that certainly I've been hearing a lot. Organisations becoming more humane, empathetic, listening um responding um you know and there's some quite remarkable things that um, so so damien when we talked about this idea of of in a way that the the virus sort of accelerating changes that were already happening and this idea of the, the the kind of future being pulled into the into the present i mean what's your advice from a for a a, a ceo if you like who's I, I wouldn't kind of maybe maybe not as um proficient as uh, this as sarah is but certainly not as 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 kind of behind the curve as some ceos are but you know it's almost kind of like stepping into this new world what's what's your kind of guidance for them as they keep having to respond to what is definitely going to be a fluid situation certainly for the next 18 months or however long it is before there's a vaccine yeah well it's interesting because i mean you know um people have been talking about the kind of the, the vuca in a world, you know, um, volatile, uncertain, complex, and, 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 you know. What was that? Volatile? A VUCA world of volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. Um, And this is something that, you know, it's a a kind of term that's been around for a while. You know, but we're we're in that now, you know. So a lot of leaders should have been, you know, you you can't be prepared for something as extreme as this. But I think leaders need to, you know, that they, they should have been, um, kind of geared up to deal with uncertainty anyway. And what we're seeing now is, you know, real uncertainty. And um, I, I came across an article recently that I thought was quite interesting. It was um, called Exploratory Leadership. And mm. what they were talking about is, you know, we've had adaptive leadership, agile leadership, servant leadership, you know, and they now this was written really before the crisis really started to get going. And they were talking about, um, uh, uh Every time I'll just quote this article quickly. Every time our external circumstances change and embed as a sustainable change, not just a blip or spike, something fleeting, we need to adapt as an evolutionary response. 
we need to step into the into unknown circumstances and, navig- and navigate novel um, novelty navigate novelty. I'm not sure if that makes sense as a way of doing business. We need to adopt an explorer's mindset, and I think that um, is you know if you think about it, this is what people mm. need to be doing now. They need to be you know we're on a we don't know what the future is. I mean. You were saying that perhaps things might not go back to how they were. I don't know. It's it's quite possible that they won't. But we're living in very uncertain times. Um, and I think, you know, leaders need to be, think differently, you know, um, that they have to have, to, you know, change their priorities perhaps. I mean, um, as, as Sarah has demonstrated, they are doing, trying to do all the right things, but, you know, no one can be sure what's coming. But I think being um, being adaptable as much as possible, making your team adaptable, communicating with people as well as you can, being honest. And I think that the thing that um, Sarah talked about, trust, I think that's absolutely key as well. Um, there's a thing called the Edelman Trust Barometer, which comes out every year. And that it always comes up very, very high that employees and um, the public expect leaders to stand up and speak out and take leadership roles when 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 the chips are down. So if, if this isn't a time for them to do it and to change, I don't know, you know, when is, to be honest. Yeah, and it's 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 really interesting because I, I, I was reading that there was some evidence that the, the if you like, the kind of trust that people, you know, in certain countries, and I think the UK is one of them, have had in their leadership while this has been happening has been unprecedentedly high levels. Um, maybe it's kind of hope rather than trust, but, you know, the, the, the kind of, strong levels of support for collective action at unprecedented levels. And I, I wonder what that's going to mean for leadership, because, you know, CEOs operate in a social and, and civil uh, ec- economic system and, and, you know, kind of adapt to that. Um, I wonder, um, you know, Sarah, what, what do you kind of feel what, what, what the, the leadership characteristics are going to have to be as people move through this, as Damien said, very uncertain, ambiguous, kind of strange period. So Damien's absolutely right about uh, the the theory about uh, changeability and uncertainty has been there for a while. The other thing, as you were talking, I was reminded of was a piece of research that I think was done, I'm I'm possibly right, about 2013. And uh, it was written up into a book called The Athena Doctrine. And the authors did research across um, 65 countries, I think it was, um, or certainly a significant amount of countries and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people. And they they asked people to prioritise which leadership skills they thought were going to be needed into the future and they mapped it onto a grid and then they went and spoke to another set of uh, of people in different cultures different countries and then they asked them whether these were seen as masculine or feminine qualities now i want to be very very clear here i'm not talking about male and female men and women i'm talking about masculine or feminine and some of the masculine qualities of being decisive and being directional and being you know dictatorial or autocratic which you know I, I'm, I'm not saying that's about men but some of those things that were maybe your old model your previous model of thinking about i don't know a a general in a war or something like that um in virtually every country those things have come massively down the scale and the qualities that were being looked for in the future were the ones that were associated with feminine now i again i know many many men who do these very very well but these were empathy listening collaboration and i think this crisis has just ramped those things right up and i do think we need to be careful because at the moment we are in a bit more of 
Uh, I think there's a lot of goodwill. I think there's a sense of we're in this together. And I think there is a need for fast decision making and everything else. But if we're going to be successful in the future, I don't think a, um, a chief exec or a prime minister or whoever can just make these big autocratic decisions and have the same level of goodwill that's floating around at the moment. So for me, as we build the trust, what we have to do is build the empowerment and take the decision making right back down to individual people who are united with a shared mission and vision and know what they're trying to do and feel totally empowered and accountable for doing it because I can't see any other way we're going to be able to get the level of agility that we're going to need to respond to the new world and at the moment we can do that because we're in a kind of command and control you will stay at home um, mm. you will do this uh, that's that's temporary so what the new world's mm. going to need to be is much more empowerment and accountability and leadership less about control and more about inspiring and bringing people together so they they can each make those decisions within a shared framework that's that's great so i'm going to throw in a, a wild card question now if that's okay um, um and it's more of a personal question really because i think everybody and we've been talking about how um you know d- different leaders have been changed by this so so I'm just kind of partly interested. I'm happy to share my own kind of experience. But, you know, Damien, how's this kind of uh, period of intense, accelerated change um, in work? How's it affected you? Well, it's funny because I, you know, I'm a a freelancer. I'm self-employed. So, you know, in a funny way, it's, um, you know, nothing's changed in in the sense that I work from home. I have my laptop, you know, and you know that hasn't changed. I mean, sadly, some of the work has dried up, but I'm hoping others other stuff will pick up. Ironically, because of this crisis, there seems to be a more of a need for leaders to actually communicate better. You know, and I'm 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 seeing people kind of asking for help with that. Um, so you know, it, it is weird kind of being stuck at home a lot. You know, I get to walk my dog, um, and I'm cooking a lot more than I used to. Um, but um, yeah, I, I mean. Not much has changed for me in, in, in the way I work, put it that way, you know, in, in my day-to-day okay. work. And Sarah, um, how, how's, this, how's this changed you? And you're, feel free to answer at whatever level you want. Gosh, so um, so I've been um, self-isolating in the shed for six weeks now. I've got um, I had a pulmonary embolism, which is a blood clot on the young uh, the lung uh, last summer. So that was a bit of a life-changing yeah. event for me. And as a result, obviously, the thought of getting an infection that's going to make it hard for me to breathe at the moment. Mm. I I'm trying to kind of just make sure I'm being extra careful. So it really does mean I've not left the house. Um, I do occasionally leave the shed. I'm not sleeping in the shed, but <laughs> I spend my days in the shed and then I go back to the house um and for various reasons my family aren't around so much at the moment either so i'm having an enormous amount of time by myself and at first i i started feeling sorry for myself but i'm now trying to switch my mindset to say this is such a privilege and such an opportunity to learn and grow i've never learned as much as as i've learned in the last few weeks it it, like i say nobody would want this horrible situation to be happening but i'm utterly determined to find the positives and for me i i think it's making me stronger and more resilient i'm learning new stuff and i'm really having to challenge some of the things that I used to do and ask myself why I'm why I did those things and whether they're still relevant so I I suspect I will work quite differently after this I used to spend most of my time running around the country we've got nine offices around the country a lot of time in London you know I I don't think I'm going to be out and about anything like the level I was beforehand because I know I can do my job well from here and look after myself at the same time but I'd like to get the balance back I'd be lying to you if I said I wanted to stay in the shed forever but um yeah 
but I think I will work differently and I think I'll work better as a result of it as well yeah and part of me uh, wants to say so you you are getting things brought to you and looked after and you're getting cared for I, I yeah okay I, I all of a sudden was fi- I was starting to feel like oh my god Sarah's in the shed on her own <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm good. I'm good. And you know, it's forced me to to search out local home deliveries and you know, not just the big supermarkets, but so there's some lovely little retailers around that are still doing deliveries and um yeah, again, it's nice to give them business. I would never have had the time to do that before. Mm. And okay, and and thank you for for sharing that. And and I think I think for me, one of the things that happened right at the beginning and I I suppose I I've always kind of felt like I had a, a life that I certainly enjoyed my work and my home life and and had a a very rich life and fulfilling life. But I immediately decided I didn't want to resume the life I had afterwards. Um, Not fundamentally, but I I know that I want to make sure that I've got three daughters in their 20s. I want to make sure I spend more time with them. I still see them quite a lot already, so they might not like this idea, but they're going to have to get used to it. But I, I I just wanted to keep some of the slowness. I want to travel less. Um, because I kind of feel on a, an environmental level, I've already committed DWG. We've we've measured our air, mi- our travel, our work miles from 2019, and we're reducing them by 50 percent for 2020. And we're going to progressively reduce them year on year um, because I want to. And we're actually starting a um, something called the work miles um, pl- uh, movement. Um, which is really encouraging organisations to measure how much miles they travelled last year, including commuting, and to put some percentage reduction for 2020, because you've already got a bit of a credit from 2020, because none of us have been going anywhere, and to look at reducing it so we can try and preserve some of these environmental benefits. Um, So I think everybody's been changed by this, and I think that's what's going to be really interesting from it. Um, So my question... um, just to kind of close Damien is um which I end every podcast with so what what's a perfect working day for you and it doesn't have to be self-isolated at home it can be but okay well I mean if 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 self-isolation wasn't um necessary I mean a perfect working day would probably still start with coffee and with a walk of my dog in the park um and because I work from home I would then come back have some more coffee, have some breakfast. And I'm one of these people who loves listening to music when I'm working. So I'm, I'm just, I'm so happy with Spotify. And I've, I've seen that Sarah has, has, has created a, a sort of um, working from home Spotify playlist. So I've, I've yeah. had a look at some of her Shed tunes. Life. <laughs> Shed life. Yeah. So I've got, I mean, I'm just, I'm just discovering so much new music. So I've got the music playing in the background. I'm working away on my laptop. I walk my dog. Um, I have my daughter some of the time. So when she's with me, you know, we'll, you know, after school, we would go for a nice long walk in the park with the dog as well. Um, you know, and then just, you know, um, that's, you know, it's a fairly kind of stress-free environment, you know, the one I have because I do work for myself. So, yeah, fueled by some coffee, some good food um, and music and um, plenty of fresh air when I can get it. Great, and we're going to have to get these playlists and add that to the show notes. I like that. And 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 Sarah, so what's what's a perfect working day for you? So mine is less about where I am or the rhythm of it or the the routine of it and and what I can ask myself at the end of the day, really. And for me, it's about balance. So as long as I've um, 
had some planning time and some doing time and some interaction time and some thinking time and and some short-term time versus some long-term time I I don't like to be just in one particular sphere at that point and and I do think for me it's it's about making sure I'm I'm adding value or kind of putting my focus where I'm most helpful at that particular point but at the end of the day I I kind of like to reflect back on a day and think I kind of helped somebody or made a difference to somebody in some way either by helping them fix a problem or facilitating getting a team or a board working a bit better together or something like that so it's less about the routine of what I do and being able to look back and go yeah I kind of made things a bit better today um they don't always happen i have to say and probably the antithesis mm-hmm. of this is spending 12 hours a day on zoom calls when the internet <laughs> goes down and i keep freezing and somebody else freezes and you know so it's um it's really about balance for me hmm. great well thank you both of you for for such a, a wonderful conversation and um um I, I think it's been it's been lovely to share that with you so thank you so much damien and thank you sarah Absolutely. Thank you. Really enjoyed it. Really, really enjoyed it as well. Digital Workplace Impact is produced by the Digital Workplace Group, a strategic partner and boutique consultancy supporting more than 100 leading businesses and public institutions to advance their intranets and broader digital workplaces through benchmarking, research and practitioner expertise. For more information, visit digitalworkplacegroup.com. And if you'd like to listen to previous episodes of the show, go to digitalworkplacegroup.com forward slash DWG underscore score podcast. This is Paul Miller wishing you well until next time.